Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97,000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. While we break for community groups during the summer, we'd love for you to stay connected through men's and women's groups on Wednesday nights at 6. As we get ready to enter into corporate worship, if you have kids in service with you, we want you to be at ease. Kids are always welcome in service, and to make things easier, there are coloring sheets in the back of the sanctuary, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. All right. Well, hey, good morning again, guys. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at the Hub City Church. And again, uh, on behalf of our church family, we are so glad you're here to worship Jesus with us today uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, just before we uh, get started, I need to run through a few announcements really quick. We do have a lot to cover. Um, the first thing is, man, I just want to give a huge thanks uh, to all who came out and fellowshiped with us and engaged the community together with us for the 4th of July. Um, I, I heard a lot of inviting to church happening, which is always great. We passed out um, all of our water for the first time. We've been doing this for six years. And we passed. It's like, that's not really the main goal. I mean, gospel conversations, inviting to church, but it was a celebratory thing to not have to be lugging back cases of water to the church building. Um, and so we passed out, man, uh, over a thousand bottles of water um, that day, and uh, as well as lots of popsicles and thousands of glow sticks. And so, man, just a really great time of um, having fun together, enjoying the fourth, the event here in our city, but also um, serving our city there at the event. So thanks to all who came out and, and helped out with that. It was a good time. Um, the second thing is that we are going to try to do a redo on our movie night um, because we lined up the popcorn, we lined up the candy and the drinks, we have the screen and the projector, and so we just need it to not rain on a Friday night, okay? That's what we really need. We're going to try uh, for July 21st, so not next Friday, but the Friday after, um, the Super Mario Brothers movie. I still haven't seen it. I'm hoping I can do that in the backyard on a blow-up movie screen with you guys. Um, if it rains again, I don't know. Maybe that's the Lord saying, you're not doing a movie night this summer. So, uh, But we're going to try. Uh, we're going to try. I feel like it's a 50-50 shot, so we're going to try to reschedule that. So uh, plan to be there tentatively. Uh, if it rains, then don't be there because we won't be out there. So anyway, uh, <laughs> the third and final thing is... Um, Baptism. If you would like to and believe that you are ready to be baptized, please get into contact with me uh, or Jason Coe or Tristan McIntyre. Um, if you're interested in like, like, hey, like, I think so, but like, what's that mean? Uh, you can go to our website, thehubcitychurch.org, um, and you can go to Next Steps. There's a tab, and you can click Baptism, and there's a whole big explanation with tabs, and just where you can kind of run through that whole idea of what is baptism, why should I be baptized? Um, it will help you to understand that. Uh, but anyway, if you want to be baptized, we're trying to figure out some logistics for our annual uh, beach baptisms, and we want to find out uh, how many are ready to be baptized and if they're all available on the same day. We're trying to coordinate that. Um, and so even if we've talked already, uh, please remind us that you want to be uh, baptized. If you haven't talked to us, then definitely talk to us uh, about baptism, and we'd love to have that conversation uh, with you, and then we will get that lined out. We'll get the, the date set up, and we'll start communicating that to the rest of the body. We typically uh, grill out and just make it a big celebratory uh, event as we feel like is appropriate. Uh, heaven celebrates. Uh, heaven throws a party uh, when one sinner repents, when someone comes to Christ. And so we want to reflect that 
as well as the body of Christ here. So um, yeah, so that's the third thing. So all right, well, uh, surprise, we're continuing in Ephesians today. Um, <laughs> not really a surprise, actually, but uh, because we do preach through entire books of the Bible. But you could say that we are embarking uh, onto or into part two of Ephesians this morning. As I've briefly explained each week thus far, uh, we have titled this series Life Together in Christ because the first half of the letter, which we just completed, is kind of this lengthy and beautiful articulation of gospel doctrine. And then the back half of the letter um, is mostly application of that doctrine for individuals, families, and churches who are doing life together in Christ. And this morning, uh, in the first six verses of chapter four, the Apostle Paul is going to give us kind of this big overarching principle for us to hold on to as we move throughout the next three chapters, uh, and that really I think we should hold on to uh, in our, our daily lives as we walk with Christ. And then he's going to give us the first and what I would argue is uh, the most important practical application for a church family uh, to strive for together. Okay, so uh, as is our practice, let's read the text and then we will begin by, by praying for God's help to understand it and apply it rightly. Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 1, says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to, one, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for you and your kindness to us. God, though we were all sinners separated from you by our own sin, you made our restoration possible by grace alone. You're so good. God, this is why we're here praising you today and every Sunday. But this morning, God, we we come to you as always, and, and we ask for your help. Opening your word is, is not something that we do lightly or that we ever want to do carelessly. You have given us clear instruction on how we are to live our lives now in light of the gospel. But God, I confess, I am not able to teach it effectively without the empowering of your Spirit. And the men and women gathered here today, these brothers and sisters in Christ, are not able to hear and apply it without the discernment of your Spirit either. And so would you help us, Lord? We desire to live lives that are worthy of our King Jesus and the the beauty of His kingdom that we have been called into. So help us today to think through what our text in Ephesians says to that end. We love you, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, about, um, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, uh, I was convicted that I wanted to know Jesus better. I was growing in my understanding of the Bible and and sound doctrine as as I I knew that I was called to pastoral ministry. I had gotten a Bible degree uh, for that purpose, but I wanted to begin having a deeper relationship with the one who I confidently affirmed as my Savior and Lord. And so I began a new kind of journey through the Gospel of Luke, Um, not where I just read and, and checked the box of having read or even studied for the sake of better intellectual understanding of it, but for the sake of closely watching and listening to Jesus. This became... Uh, a very memorable and fruitful season for me where I really began to uh, understand in, in deeper ways what it was to abide in him and his words in a, a very just uh, basic 
an unpretentious way with, with no motive other than to just know him and what he was like and, and what things seemed to really matter most to him. And so there were tons of things I learned by doing this. And so before I say anything else, if you have never done this, I would highly recommend it to you. Sit at the feet of your Lord for a few months and just dwell on his words, on Jesus's words. Consider who he really is and look to be taught perhaps new or, or maybe just deeper things by him as you intentionally make yourself the student and him the teacher as it should be in our relationships with Christ. But anyway, that's, that's for free. I hope you'll take that advice. Um, but, but here's one thing that really stood out to me about the real Jesus. He is an assessor. Jesus is an assessor. Do you know what I mean by that? Here's the basic dictionary definition. An assessor is someone who evaluates the quality of a person or a thing. And as I sat daily getting to know Jesus better, it became very evident that in his style of discipleship, he's always assessing the faith of people. He's almost always assessing the faith of people in his Beatitudes, in his parables, in his just straight up instructive words to the 12. If I could kind of create uh, one of the kind of biggest umbrellas that the majority of Jesus' teachings could kind of be placed under or categorized under, I would argue that it would be spiritual assessment of the quality of faith. He talks about that a lot, a lot. And I think that's because to the degree that our faith is right, our lives will come into conformity with it. Okay? That is, to the degree that what we actually truly believe is right, how we live will be right. right? Again, if, if you've not ever seen that about Jesus Spend some time in the Gospels and, and let me know what you come up with. See if you think I'm right. But I really do think if you start to listen to Jesus carefully, you'll see this about him, that in his discipleship method, a great majority of his teachings are meant to help people evaluate the quality of their faith. Not the quantity. Right? He talks about only needing a mustard seed to move a mountain. So he's not talking about quantity. He's talking about quality of faith. And in that way of discipling, we, what we find out about Jesus is that he's even numbers and results oriented. That is, um, in his evaluative nature, he teaches that genuine faith will grow and it will produce fruit. Okay, That is, your character, if you are genuine in your faith, your character will change. People who you come into contact with will be helped. And as you do the things that Jesus has commanded, new disciples will be made by you. Okay. Now to those who are maybe overly sensitive to the thought of, of works or, or works-based righteousness, this may sound suspicious, but um, Jesus seems to teach that that genuine Christian faith is not opposed to working. It's just opposed to earning. Okay, It's just opposed to earning. The little brother of Jesus, James, wrote a letter that puts this very plainly. Josh discussed this a few weeks back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, that faith without works is dead. Because while none of us, no one is able to do enough to earn their salvation, right? Salvation comes by grace alone through faith. That's how we're saved, okay? But good works are indeed the display of our salvation, okay? Growth, fruit, 
works, whatever you want to call it, these are the validation. They're the outward validation of the inward authenticity of our faith. Okay. And what we see today in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians is that the Apostle Paul is no stranger to this relationship between faith and works. Some people like to kind of pit, you know, Paul and, and James against one another, you know, like Paul's like the grace guy and James is like the works guy. But we see here really clearly um, that that's not the case. Paul gets that connection and the need for assessment of if faith and works are relating to one another properly in the lives of the believers who he's instructing. He, so he says in verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And it's, it's interesting because he says something almost identical to this in several of his letters to the churches. In, in Philippians 1, 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians 1, 10, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom. And glory. So, so while he's he uses slightly different language in each of these verses, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, worthy of God and his kingdom. I think we can easily come to the conclusion that he's really saying the same thing in all these verses. He's saying the same thing here. He's saying, strive to live your life in such a way that lines up with what you've come to understand about the gospel. That is, Jesus as Lord, the kingdom of God, and our calling to be his disciples and his ambassadors in the world. He's saying, be consistent. Be consistent. Don't say you really believe something and then live like you don't. Right. Once again, this is from... The heart of Christ himself, who pointedly and rhetorically asks in Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? See, Paul is, is really just stating that same sentiment in, in the positive sense, right? He's saying, if you call Jesus Lord, then do what he says. And live like he is worthy of your obedience and submission in everything. Okay. So here's the first point in your notes that we need to remember as we move through the next three chapters of Ephesians, but as we move through life, right? The Christian life is characterized by this ongoing evaluation. Are we becoming who God has already made us to be in Christ? Are we becoming who God has already made us to be in Christ? You see, this is what growth, or to use a more uh, doctrinal word, this is what sanctification is. It's, it's the process by which we progressively become more and more who we have already been declared by God to be at the moment of justification. Let me just explain this, just to make sure you're, you're, you're tracking here. Um, for those of us who are Christians, at the moment of faith, the moment of new birth, the first second that you emerged as a new creation, filled with the Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, that second we were already declared to be positionally righteous. Positionally righteous. All of our sin was washed away by the blood of Christ, as it were, and we were in that moment, that first moment of faith, seen as blameless before God. That is perfect. Because we were wrapped 
and the perfect righteousness of Christ himself that was imputed to us or um, credited to our account, our spiritual bank account by Christ. But then from there, what, what happens is from that point forward, as we start walking with Christ or abiding in him as our, our vision statement reflects the language of John 15 and the, the song we just sang together, that abiding flows out into obeying. That abiding flows out into obeying. What we believe and how we live are coming into closer and closer alignment. That's the process of sanctification or growth in our faith. And what Paul is implying in verse 1 is that even though this process that's being fueled by the Holy Spirit in our lives, even though the, the Spirit is the one driving this process, he's saying we still have an aspect of responsibility in it. Okay? And that we are to be evaluating and ensuring that the process of sanctification for us hasn't gotten hung up or, or halted somewhere along the way. Okay? In Philippians, you've probably heard or read that Paul tells believers famously to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Even though God is ultimately the one doing the work in us, he says, it's to be a coordinated effort. Okay? God's working, we're working, but God's the one working in us first. But we're, he wants us to work too, right? So we, we see that. It's, it's like... Take your kid to work day, okay? Um, you might take your kid to work and tell them to staple some papers for you, you know, or, or hand you some things that you need uh, from them or, or walk across the office and make a copy or put these things in the shredder. And so they're helping you. But it's not as though you're unable to do it without them. You're just choosing to let them have a hand in it for that day. Okay. In the same way, it's like for us, every day is take your kid to work day. We're the kids. <laughs> okay. We're also the work. Right? Our Father is working in us, and He invites us to be a part of that process. Okay. So we see this idea again, the idea that we are to be evaluating our growth in 2 Corinthians 13. Where Paul says, really plainly, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed, you fail to meet the test. So, so, so hopefully, I've, I've sufficiently shown you that, that as we walk out our faith, we are to be evaluating ourselves or testing ourselves to ensure that our faith is progressing properly, right? But what's the test? What's the test? Well, the test is, we already said it, are we becoming who God has already made us to be in Christ? That's the test. But, but how do we know? Like, how do we conduct this kind of evaluative test? Well, Paul and the rest of Ephesians, and really the entire New Testament explains to us what that should look like in different aspects of our lives, right? Scripture is the test. <laughs> Scripture becomes the test. How we should think, how we should treat people, what our marriages should look like, how we should parent our kids, how we should act at work, et cetera, et cetera, right? And in verses 2 through 6, he starts off with the first thing that it should look like for us collectively as a church, okay? Here's the first test, right? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, right? So, so here's how I would just paraphrase or kind of principalize this passage. When a church family is bound together by gospel unity, they will make a culture of charity their top priority. Okay? When a church family is bound together by gospel unity, they'll make a culture of charity their top priority. One modern translation I read uh, from time to time says it this way, make every effort to preserve the unity that the Holy Spirit has already created by cultivating an atmosphere thick with love. (laughs) I really like that descriptive language for a gospel culture. An atmosphere thick with love. That's what we should be striving for, Paul says. And we'll get to how he fleshes that out in just a few minutes. But the first thing I want to point out is that gospel unity is what leads to the culture of charity, right? Gospel gospel unity is what leads to a culture of charity. And that unity is not something that we are called to create. Unity is not the thing we're called to create. Do you see that in the text? Paul says we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not manufacture it ourselves. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Joni Erickson Tata says it so succinctly. She says, believers are never told to become one. We already are one, and we're expected to act like it. That language she uses of being one is an allusion to our text this morning. It's what Paul has in mind when he's talking about the gospel unity that we are to have and to maintain together. So let's, let's do this. Let's, let's work backwards in this text because I think that'll help us to better grasp this relationship between unity and charity that Paul is laying out. So let's read verses 4 through 6. He says, um, <clears throat> There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's saying, here's what he's saying here. All these one, 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 one. Here's what he's saying. That in a room like this, in a room like this, there are a lot of different kinds of people. Okay? Young people and old people. Rich people and poor people. White people, black people, Asian people, and Hispanic people. Highly educated people and people who dropped out of school. People who are into sports and people who are into art, right? People who think that The Office is the best show ever created and people who are wrong and have no sense of humor. Okay. All right, we'll scratch that one, okay? But religious people who were raised in church... And people for whom this is their first experience with church. People from the whole spectrum of backgrounds, right? But as many differences as we may have from one another, because of the gospel, what we now have in common far exceeds and outpaces and trumps anything that may be different about us. The peace that we now have with God binds us together. The peace that we now have with God binds us together. We all have the same Lord who we love and submit to, Jesus Christ. We all have the same faith in Him. And the the fountain of grace that is His atoning Death on the cross that forgives us of all of our sins. We all have the same hope, the hope of resurrection and eternal life with God because of Jesus. 
We've all been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit who now indwells us and convicts us of sin and guides us into all truth. We all have the same Heavenly Father whose gracious providence and fatherly care we are dependent on and praying for each and every day. Guys, we are a family. We are a family. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on that. The text is authoritative. We are a family. We are the body of Christ. We are one. And just like any family and any body, we have a lot of diversity. And that's a good thing. We're actually going to get into that next week. Okay? But the gospel that unites us forms an incredibly strong bond that we are to treasure as an extension of, like Matt said, treasuring Christ himself. We are to treasure this bond with the body of Christ and fight to maintain it as we await the return of Christ. And Paul says, that this unity is the first thing that we should be thinking about in regards to walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And I would argue, you could disagree with me, but I think it's pretty clear. Paul did not just, Paul's not a random guy, okay? He's very methodical. He's very planned out. He knows what he's saying, okay? He did not just choose a random practical aspect to discuss first, like eeny, meeny, miny, unity, okay? No, like that's, no, he, he actually mentions unity first in other places as well. So the question we should be asking is, why does he say that unity with one another is the first thing and thus one of the most important things that identifies our Christian walk as worthy or not? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, here's why I think unity is a top priority in the evaluation of our faith. Again, I'm going to go back to what Jesus says. In John 13, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says that if we're united together with the kind of love that he first showed us, humble, generous, familial, self-sacrificing love, that is going to be the identifying marker that we belong to him. Okay, That's what Jesus says. And get this, watch how Paul connects the worthiness of our walk with unity and this same idea of people seeing us and knowing that our faith in Jesus is legit. He connects all these things in Philippians 1. We read the beginning of this earlier, but let's read the whole thing. In Philippians 1, 27, 28, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing, here's the unity, firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Here, here we go. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So once again, we see that Paul, Paul has absorbed the teachings of Jesus as an apostle of Jesus. That is an authoritative representative of Jesus. And he, is, he instructs the church in the ethos of Jesus. Okay, He's saying that when we, the church, are in unity around the truth of the gospel, and that gospel unity is producing a culture of charity, of love among us, an atmosphere thick with love where it's evident that decisively, no matter what, we are for one another. We're for one another. I'm not talking about, okay, I'm not talking about surface level unity. 
Okay. Or we just kind of go to the same church. We sit in a room together for two hours on Sunday morning. Okay. It's way deeper than that. I'm talking about a kind of loving unity where our lives have been enmeshed. Okay. And we're serving one another. We're praying for one another. We're getting our families together. We're staying up to date on what's going on with each other so that we can stay encouraged and focused on the mission together and remembering that we're not alone and that we have constant help and support and friendship in one another no matter what. Paul says, when people see that, when people see that, they make the connection that Jesus must really save people and change their lives for the better. Right? That kind of unity, deep down, is really what all people want. That's what all people want, right? God has wired humanity to want biblical unity, whether they know it or not. And so when they, when they see it in the community of the church, it's supposed to be compelling. And it's supposed to elicit this longing for what only Jesus can give, okay? And I think why Paul talks about unity first and why he makes such a big deal about maintaining it is because unity is meant to be the observable proof to a lost world that Jesus is good. It's meant to be the observable proof to this lost world around us that Jesus is good. Biblical unity is meant to form a clear contrast with the world. It's meant to be counter-cultural. Have you looked at our culture recently? I just wish I hadn't, right? It's, it's getting uglier by the day. Unity and charity are so uncommon out there in the world. It's mostly meanness, bitterness, and snark, right? Originally, I was going to give some examples here, like the you know, crusty word of mouth Facebook page, but I don't think I need to, I don't think I need to give you. It's self-evident. It's self-evident. But in Jesus's church, because we have been made new by the gospel, and because we've been bound together in the peace of Christ, we are to be in the world, but very evidently not of the world. We are to be set apart from the culture, because when people see the world getting worse and worse, and Jesus' church just continuing to love one another and stick together and support each other like they don't see anywhere else, it makes our message believable. It makes our message believable. So do you, do you see the connection? Maintaining our unity collectively is essential to each of us walking in a manner worthy of the gospel individually, right? Our, our faithfulness as individual believers is inseparably tied to our connection with a whole body of believers. You can't pull these things apart. They're, they're together. This means it's... Guys, this means it's impossible to live a faithful life to the fullest extent if you are a church-hopping Christian. You can't live faithfully to the fullest extent if you're a church-hopping Christian. Or if you're a Christian who, who never gets really connected to the community of the church that you attend, right? Because there's I'm not trying to hit you upside the head with this or anything, but, but there's just come with me, okay, rationally. There's just so much of the instruction in the New Testament that you cannot live out 
without other people to live it out with. Trying to be a Christian without a church family who you are in loving unity with is like trying to be a quarterback with no wide receiver and no offensive line. You can throw the ball. There ain't nobody to catch it. And you better run fast because you're going to get sacked. Right? So that's the, that's the high priority of gospel unity. Okay? And, and due to the close connection, we, we couldn't help but start touching on some general aspects of this culture of charity. But in the, the middle verses of our text, Paul gives us some specifics that help us understand how that kind of loving atmosphere can be maintained. So let's, let's talk about those as we finish up. <clears throat> verses 2 and 3. He says that we should walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So let's, let's kind of break this up into three chunks that characterize unified, charitable Christians who by their nature maintain this culture of charity. Okay. Here's the first one. Unified, charitable Christians have been humbled before the Lord Jesus and as a result, will be gentle with one another. Right? They've been humbled before the Lord Jesus and as a result, they'll be gentle with one another. There's only one place in the New Testament where Christ describes his kind of his personality, his, his makeup, the way that he carries himself. And that self-description is in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, when he calls all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. He says, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Friends, let me be clear. Jesus hates sin. Jesus hates sin. He never sinned himself. And Hebrews 12 tells us that he so despised the shameful effects of sin in the lives of his people that he was willing to endure the cross for them. That's how much he hates sin. He decimated it on the cross, right? And yet, while Jesus clearly hates sin, he's also rightly accused of being a friend to sinners. Right? Jesus is a friend to sinners. Now, I don't care how tough of a person you are. And I don't care how, with how much natural charisma or confidence that you tend to carry yourself. If you have truly come to understand the gospel, there has been at least one point in your life where you have come trembling before Christ, sick with your own sin, feeling the weight of your hopelessness and helplessness and instead of wrath and anger and disgust that would have been totally justified towards you from a holy God, you experienced instead the moment where you just collapse into the loving, gentle, and healing embrace of the Lord Jesus. And anyone who is truly a believer knows this has been a radically humbling experience for all believers that goes on to shape their own disposition towards their fellow sinners. Okay. This means that there is absolutely zero room 
for pride in a community where every member is only a part of that community because of pure grace. If you're in Christ here, raise your hand. If you're a Christian, raise your hand. Nearly all of us. You didn't earn that. You didn't merit that. You didn't do anything to deserve that. I have not done anything to deserve that. And this shapes our disposition toward our fellow sinners. How can there be arrogance, conceit, and egotism in a family full of previously dead, sin-enslaved rebels who deserve nothing but the wrath of God? And so, when a group of redeemed sinners who have all been deeply and unforgettably humble before Jesus gets together, their culture of charity is going to be characterized by a spirit of gentleness and care towards one another. Right? They're going to understand that that every single one of us is beset with our own weaknesses and shortcomings. That none of us are perfect that each of us is still a work in progress from the newest believer who got saved this morning, maybe, all the way up to the oldest, wisest, most experienced pastor. We all continue to have, if we're honest, simple bents in areas where we have yet to experience the fullness of victory because we will not be perfect until we are face to face with Christ. That's when our our sanctification is complete. It turns into glorification. Then and only then when we see Christ. right? And so this understanding of the sameness of our core beliefs, but also the sameness of our human frailty, In our brokenness, it leads to a tenderness towards one another. It should lead to a tenderness towards one another. It leads to looking at one another with empathy and a consideration of each other's needs as opposed to looking at one another with critical spirits to size each other up and pronounce Judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that we excuse or minimize sin. Okay? That doesn't mean we excuse or minimize sin. It just means that in humility and gentleness, we aim to be understanding of one another, give benefit of the doubt, and as people who all continue to wrestle with their own sin, like when it comes to situations where we have to discuss sin with each other, rather than intimidating or shaming or guilting one another, we seek to refresh and restore one another as we have all been so refreshed and restored by Christ. So unified charitable Christians have been humbled before the Lord Jesus and will be gentle with one another. That's the first way Paul says we're to be pract- we're to uh, practically strive to maintain our unity. Here's, here's the second one. Unified charitable Christians have experienced God's patience and thus are quick to forgive one another. Similar to the first point, we're, we're kind of flowing through here. Okay, I would confidently say that any of us who have been following Christ for longer than one day, okay, have come to realize that our transformation usually doesn't take place as fast as we would like. Anybody else? Okay. Our transformation usually doesn't take place as fast as we would like. And so we are often finding ourselves at the mercy of God's patience and his long suffering with us. making sure that's clear. Not to mention, a church, in a lot of ways, 
is kind of like a K through 12 school. Okay, follow me. A church in a lot of ways is like a K through 12 school. In the same sense that we are all God's children learning to be faithful at various levels, right? We're not all in the same place. Some of us are still having problems getting to the potty on time. <laughs> Some of us are able to drive, right? There's a, a decade gap between 6 and 16. And while age does not, our physical age does not um, necessarily co correspond to spiritual maturity, there are definitely stages of spiritual maturity like there are grade levels. Okay? Also, different people are good at different things. Just like in school, some people are good at math. Some people are good at reading. Some believers are really strong in evangelism. Others might be good at administration. Okay, I say all this to say we are to be patient with one another. Expect younger believers to make more messes. Okay, Expect younger believers to make more messes. And don't be surprised when the guy who might be a really gifted teacher struggles to return your email in 24 hours. That might be me. I don't know. Okay, but I'm not saying I'm a really gifted teacher. I am a teacher, but I do struggle with administration. Okay, so I'm just saying God, our perfect father, has been and continues to be patient with us. And so we are to be patient with one another as well. When it's not just a spiritual age thing or a spiritual giftedness thing, but even when it's a sin thing, even when it's a sin thing. A charitable church culture working to maintain unity is a culture where believers extend forgiveness to one another. Colossians 3.13 says, if anyone has a complaint against another, we are to forgive each other. Get this part, in the same way that the Lord has forgiven us. How has the Lord forgiven us? Freely, quickly, and repeatedly. Friend, Jesus has forgiven us of everything, our worst sins. This is going to be uncomfortable, but, but just think in your own mind. Recount the darkest and most depraved moments of your rebellious existence. Okay, stop contemplating that. Wiped away. Wiped away as though they never happened. No punishment, no penalty, removed from your slate as far as the east is from the west. Do you get that? That's infinite. Like, if you go east, you're going to like keep going around. Like, you, could, you just keep going east. The east and the west are infinitely separate. Though he is omniscient and all-knowing, the hymn goes, he counts not their sum. And instead, he casts them away into an ocean without bottom or shore, though our sins have been many, friends. His mercy is more. His mercy has been and always is more. And because Jesus has done that for all of us who trust him, we're going to spend eternity worshiping him together. Yeah, and hope you like each other because <laughs> forever we'll be together. And so if we are unable to maintain the unity secured by that shared peace and be patient and forgive the sins of others. If we can't do that, there is a serious malfunction with our faith. Sinners who have been forgiven will forgive sinners who need forgiveness. Sinners who have been forgiven 
will forgive sinners who need forgiveness. This is part of what is so compelling about Christian community. Every community that humanity forms winds up with sin committed by its members against its members. Every community that humanity forms. I'm not just talking about the church. The difference about Christian community is not that it's without sin. Don't make this mistake. It's not that the church is without sin. It's that the church forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives forgives sin. A unified body of believers who are striving for the charity and love that maintains unity when they inevitably sin against each other will extend forgiveness to each other. And don't miss this word, eager. Eager, man, it's like, you're like, yeah, okay. You get to eager and you're like, dang it. (laughs) We're not to be begrudging about our forgiveness. Eager means you want to do it. It means readily. It means passionately. It means wholeheartedly. That should be the level of our commitment to maintaining our unity with humility, gentleness, and patience. And this really flows right into the final aspect Paul mentions, that we are to bear with one another in love. So because... Unified charitable Christians have their hope in the unshifting love of God. They will not give up on one another. (laughs) Because we have our hope in the unshifting love of God, we will not give up on one another. Romans 8, Paul says, "I'm, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor, think, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, if that is the kind of inseparable love that characterizes the new covenant that we have entered into by the blood of Christ, a divine love that is so committed to us, that it will not let us go. Anybody thankful for that? I'm thankful. I am broken, sinful. I'm, I'm thankful. The love of God will not let me go. If we feel the weight of that, how could we give up on one another and feel okay about it? How can we How can we give up on one another and not be convicted by the Spirit? I I hate that I've seen what I've seen as a pastor, but I've seen many people abandon their church families for things that could have easily been worked through if they'd been eager to maintain the unity of the bond of peace. Don't get me wrong. There are sometimes good reasons to leave a church. (laughs) If some of these things happen in our church, maybe you should leave. Unrepentant sin doctrinal heresy, unhealthy, abusive cultures. But I'm just going to be real. These are not usually the reasons people leave churches. Most people leave churches because they're bored. They want to change things up. Because they're not getting exactly what they want for a season or leadership isn't doing things exactly the way they think it should be done or because the grass seems greener at another church because, you know, this is the one I see the most because they had a spat with someone in the church and never want to talk to that person or see that person ever again. And leaving your church for these reasons makes a mockery of the gospel. It makes a mockery of the gospel, and it totally disregards the unity and charity that's supposed to characterize a blood-bought covenant community that lives to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. The Bible calls us the body of Christ because that's the level of connectivity that we're supposed to have. Human bodies are not put together by bubble gum and paper clips. 
They're the most complex, interdependent system of organs and tissues that we know of. And members don't just cut off other members. Sure, there are rare occasions for amputation, but only in the most extreme instances of injury or illness because usually a body's meant to stay put together. That's how it works best in unity. And this is the same for us. We don't cut one another off or dip out on one another because our hope is in a God who because of the sacrifice he made for us will never cut us off. He will never give up on us and he will never stop loving us. Jesus promises to never leave or forsake us. And so our culture is to be characterized by that same kind of unity-preserving love. Well-known and highly respected biblical counselor Jay Adams said this. He said, Few things are sapping the strength of the church of Jesus Christ more than the unreconciled state of so many believers. So many have matters deeply embedded in their claws, like iron wedges forced between themselves and other Christians. They can't walk together because they do not agree when they should be marching side by side through this world, taking men captive for Jesus Christ, they're acting instead like an army that has been routed and scattered and whose troops in their confusion have begun fighting among themselves. Nothing is sapping the church of Christ of her strength so much as these unresolved problems, these loose ends among believing Christians that have never been tied up. There is no excuse for this sad condition. The Bible does not allow for loose ends. God wants no loose ends. Dear Christian, when a church family is bound together by gospel unity, they will make a culture of charity their top priority. They'll work to cultivate an atmosphere thick with love. That means as the Hub City Church, we are to eagerly maintain the bond of peace formed by the blood of Christ that unifies us. Let's not allow for relational loose ends, as Jay Adams says, in our lives, but instead, as people who have been humble before the Lord Jesus and experienced the patience and unshifting love of God, let's be gentle with one another. Forgive one another, and certainly not ever give up on each other. John Piper pointedly says, if we are unwilling to work to maintain unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in effect saying <clears throat> that Jesus' death was not a sufficient payment for the sins of God's people, and this is an insult to the cross of Christ. So I would encourage you today, if you have loose ends in your life with anyone, but certainly fellow believers, make it your priority to get those tied up. Make it your priority to get those tied up. Be reconciled. Apologize where you were wrong. Forgive where you were wronged. The gospel demands this. The gospel absolutely demands this of us. And this is perhaps a less severe problem, but still an incredibly important and urgent one. If you're not committed to yet, or if you haven't enmeshed your life with the life of a church family, who you can live out biblical unity with, what are you waiting for? Get in here. Get in here. If you're confused about how to do that, and you just want to talk with somebody, you can text Hub City, one word, to 97,000. We say it every week. Or you can stop at the connection desk. Someone will get you connected today. If you don't want to do that, just come talk to me. I'll connect with you myself. I will gladly do that. Um, shameless plug, if you want kind of a group environment to get connected to right now, come to Men's and Women's Ministries. It's great. Anybody going to that who's... who's Loving that? Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's an easy end to get 
connected. So if you want, if you want to walk in a manner worthy of your gospel calling, the Bible, not Tad Anderson, the Bible says you got to do that. Not by yourself, but in union with Christ's body. Let's do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. This is, oh man. God, I just have been weighed down this week as I considered the implications of this text. And Father, I just admit, while unity was incredibly important in the first century with Jews and Gentiles who had a hard time being enmeshed together. God, unity continues to be a really difficult issue, but it's so important, God. And in an age of like modern individuality, God, we're so prone to just think we should be an island. And that is not what your word teaches us, God. We're to be committed to one another because of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. Father, as much as I can teach, as much as I can say, as much as I can urge and counsel, God, I can't do this. I can't, can't put a body together. I'm not a spiritual surgeon. So, Father, would you do this among us by your spirit? Help us, Lord. We're just your kids who you've brought along for the work. Help us. Tell us what to do. Bind us together. Help us to be people who are concerned with maintaining the bond of peace that was already created for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.